Today's sermon text is 1 Samuel 11 and 12. I'll be reading chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 231. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this occasion I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all of Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messages through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, and they reported the matter in the ears of the people, all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? And so they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. And when he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. And when the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning at watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Thank you, Ashley. Would you, uh, would you pray with me as we go to God's word together this morning and begin? Heavenly Father, as we look to your word, the word we do thank you for, the word that you have used to give us life, to point us to Christ, we pray that you would do that afresh this morning. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's good to be back here this morning after a couple of weeks away and from preaching. I know I've said this before. But I do just want to publicly give thanks to the Lord for men like Kyle and Corey who are faithful with the word. It's a great privilege, church, to have multiple men who love the Lord and who faithfully serve the congregation with preaching. So uh, thank you, brothers, for preaching for a few weeks and for faithfully handling the word for us. 
Uh, we've been we've been walking through the book of First Samuel for about a month now, a little over a month, and these past couple of weeks that you've seen have been really a pivotal turn, a pivotal moment in the book of First Samuel. Yes, but really a pivotal moment in the book uh, in, in Israel's history. So in chapter eight, we looked at two weeks ago. After about 400 years of being led by men like Moses, men like Joshua, and then you have this whole host of judges leading the people, the people have turned to Samuel and they say they want something new. They want a change in the constitution. They're, they're tired of the ragtag kind of ad hoc leadership that they've perceived in these men and they want a king. One who is crowned as their leader to go out and to fight all of their battles for them. And then last week, looking at Samuel chapter 9 and 10, for Samuel 9 and 10, we were introduced to the first king of Israel. The tall, handsome, rich, and maybe just a little bit bumbling guy, Saul. And this morning, as we look at 1 Samuel 11 and 12, we're going to catch a glimpse of What's happened? What's going to happen now that Israel has basically said, we, we're tired of hitching our wagon to the Lord, to these judges. We want to hitch it to a king. We want him to go out and fight these battles for us. We'll just get a glimpse of what, what happens here. If you want the main point of these couple of chapters, when you kind of take them together, it's there on the top of your note sheet. It says, God is faithful. God is faithful to graciously save his people despite our faithlessness. God is faithful to graciously save his people despite our faithlessness. Uh, as we kind of move through this, you'll, you'll see, especially in chapter 11, the, the theme of salvation being saved comes up several times. The theme of deliverance comes up in chapter 12. Those, that's really thematically what rises to the surface. And so as we walk through the text this morning, we're going to organize our time together around three truths that we'll see come out about God's salvation. And I've been praying this week for you and for me. And my prayer is that we would worship that when we see kind of these two things put together, like our faithlessness and God's merciful salvation, that we would respond, both in worship of the Lord of who has saved us, and that we would want to walk in holiness, to fear and serve this Lord all of our days. Now, I, I want to spend just a little bit, before we jump right into the text, I want to just remind you a little bit more uh, detail about what we talked about last week, looking at Saul in the introduction to Saul, right? Saul from the outside seems like a wonderful choice for a king, right? He's from a wealthy family. That's one of the first things you read in chapter nine. He's, he's got a wealthy dad. He's, who's going, he's going out and finding his dad's donkeys. He's tall. He has a commanding presence. He's good looking. So the Israeli news and gazette is really happy to have his face on the front of their news things or scrolls or whatever it may be. They, they want a guy who looks like this dude. But there were some signs that, that Corey pointed out that if you just kind of poke at, look a little bit discouraging on underneath the surface. I remember in, in chapter nine, he's got these, these lost donkeys and throughout the story, at, at best, he comes out looking like he's at best ill-prepared. 
Right, he's got this servant who is an eagle scout, who like brings everything with him. And Saul's like, I don't know, where do we go? What do I do? I don't have anything for this. And even uh, then in chapter 10, you see another kind of recognition of Saul as the king. And where is Saul to be found when the lot comes out where it says Saul is going to be the king? He, he's hiding. He's like cowering over in the baggage, making himself scarce. And that leads, even among Israel, those in Israel who look at Saul, you have a divide in how people respond to him. So flip back to just the end of chapter 10. You can look at this just in your text if you want to. There are, in verse 24, like the people on the Saul fan club. Right? They have t-shirts with his name on it, and they're shouting, Long live the king. But then at the very end, if you look down in verse 27, like the last verse of chapter 10, there are some worthless fellows who are crouched over to the side and they're not saying long live the king. They're kind of wondering among themselves, how how can this man save us? And so at the beginning of chapter 11, we as readers, we may be kind of wrestling with these two camps, optimistic Saul, maybe he's the guy, maybe he's the one that the king that Israel needs, but maybe also wondering if his weakness is just going to be too much for him. And so here we finally get to see Saul step out from among the baggage, step out from a passive kind of role and see him in action. And what we see in chapter 11 is a good first portrait is that salvation comes through God's spirit empowered king. Salvation comes through God's spirit empowered king. Now, Nahash the Ammonite, he's the, the introductory character in chapter 11. He comes to attack the city of Jabesh-Gilead, which is in like the far northeast of the country of Israel, probably just on the other side of the Jordan River. And Nahash is a bad dude. He's a bad man. Right, the men of Jabesh, they, they say, we know what's coming. We're going to try to make a treaty with this guy. And Nahash says, yeah, sounds great. One, one caveat. I am an avid collector of right eyeballs. So you are going to have to give me your right eye if you want to be, and not even give me, I'm going to gouge out your right eye if you want to make a treaty with me. And practically what this would do is this means that all these men, these fighting men in Jabesh, they would be pretty much defenseless. The whole side of their body that they can't really see what's coming at them. So it's, it's, it's making them worthless almost as soldiers. But really, if you want to see what Nahash, what he's really wanting to do is not just make them bad soldiers, but look at the end of verse two. This is what he wants to do. He wants to bring disgrace on all of Israel. Just think about like the, the stories that, that would happen for a generation as People go about and say, Granddad, why, why do you and like all your buddies just have left eyes? And it's a monument that would be left throughout this city for years to come. Nahash the Ammonite, he came and he conquered us. And Nahash seems so confident in his victory that he agrees that if Jabesh wants to go and try to find a savior, they can do that. They, they have seven days to go find someone. And at first it seems like, like Nahash is right, there's no one coming. Because when the men get to the city of Gibeah in verse 4, the men of Gibeah, they don't say, let's make a plan, let's go into action, we're going to save these people. The men in chapter 4, they weep because they think that the situation in their eyes is hopeless. 
Now Saul, though, Saul was out working in the field when these messengers came in. And if that, just really quickly, if that's like, what's the king doing in the field? Remember, Israel's new to this kingship thing. There are no palaces. There's no royal accoutrements. There's no thrones at this point. So Saul is not in the royal penthouse. There is no royal penthouse. He is walking behind a plow. But when he comes in from these fields and he hears the news, we get this pivotal sentence. Okay, look, look down at chapter 11, verse 6. The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. We've, we've seen kind of throughout the book of 1 Samuel a few places where you should hear echoes. Like the Bible is constantly pointing back to things that come before it. So here is an echo that you should hear from judges. The Spirit rushes upon a person, not making them new people. Not Don't think about regeneration like you think about uh, John chapter 3 and having a new heart. No, the Spirit is rushing upon a judge to empower them to bring deliverance. And that's just what is happening here. God empowered Othniel and Gideon and Jephthah and Samson multiple times to deliver Israel. And here, God empowers Saul. I'm sending my Spirit to him. So Saul then sends this um, pretty graphic message to the rest of Israel. You get a letter from the new king. Hey, I'm this guy. Also, see enclosed piece of oxen. And Israel likes their oxen whole. And they say, okay, we're, we're going to follow the king. We're going to go out and fight our battles. So 330,000 men come out to Jabesh Gilead. And the men of the city of Jabesh are relieved. They send this, this ambiguous. The ESV interprets this as something saying, we're going to come give ourselves up to you. In the, the Hebrew, it's kind of an ambiguous phrase. It says, we're going to, we're going to come out to you. So if you're, if you're Nahash, you may hear that as like, they're going to give themselves up. If you're Jabesh, you may be saying, we're going to come out to you and we're going to kick your tail. But so Nahash is resting on his loins, thinking tomorrow we will, we'll conquer. But then in the early watch of the morning, Saul and his army divide into three camps. They decimate the Ammonites. And that's the story that we find here just in these 11 verses of Saul delivering Israel, the spirit-empowered king delivering Israel. And this is for the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, where Saul will be a character in chapter after chapter after chapter. This is the high point for Saul. This is the pinnacle of his reign. We'll just see over, you'll see next week even, and every chapter after that, how Saul will tragically descend further and further from this pinnacle. And so I I do, while we have this chapter before us, I, I want to pause and say, what's different? Like, what is here in chapter 11 that, that all of a sudden when you get to chapter 13 and following is gone? And is not happening in Saul's reign. And I want to point out two things that we should see here as the primary reasons that Saul stands out here as a worthy man, a good king even. First, if, if you look at the story and you want to join that band of merry men who are on Team Saul and say, yes, Saul is a big dude. He is the one we need. Remember, remember first where Saul's strength comes from. Because the text is really clear. The turning point for this is verse 6. When the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul. 
And in fact, I, I brought up some of the context from last week because I think when you see the portrait of Saul in chapters 9 and 10, and then you kind of put that here with the portrait of Saul in chapter 11, you see this kind of set in stark contrast, the difference the Spirit makes. Uh, there's, there's this moment in one of the Harry Potter books where there's a guy named Ron Weasley. He's the goalkeeper for the team, the Quidditch team. And if you don't know what Quidditch is, pretend it's soccer. Okay, that'd be good enough. He's a goalkeeper. Okay, thank you, Wheeler. He's a goalkeeper for his team. Okay, and he is the worst person on the team. He's terrible. And so one day before this big game, uh, Harry, the main character of the book, decides that he's going to give him a little help. And he pretends, he doesn't actually do it, but pretends to give a potion called liquid luck to Ron. And Ron sees, you know what, I've got this and now I can be the best. And that game he does amazingly. It's the best game he has ever played in his life. Now, I was reminded by Laura that he pretended to put liquid luck in there, so this illustration breaks down there. Don't worry, I'm pressing this when you go home. But that kind of difference, you see the stark contrast of like worst player, guy who's not really set to succeed, becoming someone who is raised on the shoulders and you know hoisted out of the, the stadium after a game. That's the kind of difference the Spirit makes in Saul here. This somewhat weak farm boy, he becomes... Like he, he uses tactical military genius and it's not, this victory is not won because he's got really good looks. Like Nahash didn't go, man, that's a good looking dude. We gotta, we should turn ourselves in. It's not that he went to West Point and the, he all of a sudden just says, I know exactly how to do this. No, the, the winner, the, the power of victory here is clearly coming through the spirit of God working in him. It is God's spirit. That makes all the difference here. And you'll see in coming weeks that not having the Spirit makes a tremendous difference in Saul. And that really does lead to this second distinctive that shows up here in Saul's response to his victory. Right? This is, I said, the pinnacle of Saul's power. He has, uh, he's like the, the leader. Everybody says he's done what is well. And you remember the people who are on team Saul. They, they remember the people who said, who were against Saul. The people who were questioning, what do we do? Can this man lead us? And so look at verse 12. The, the people from team Saul, they, they look and they say this. Verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. And here's Saul's chance. He can set an example. Right? He can use his authority and cement his place as the king who will not have people stand up against him. But what does he do? Look at verse 13. Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Instead of making a name for himself, Saul really magnifies the name of the Lord. He, he responds to this in mercy and in humility. Right? He, he's merciful to his enemies, to the people who questioned him and said, can, we, can this guy actually lead us? He's merciful to them and then in humility, he admits publicly, this victory is not mine. It is not about me. It is the Lord. It is Yahweh 
the king of Israel who has ultimately saved Israel this day. So Saul, who, who looked weak and ineffectual as he chased lost donkeys around Israel, as he hid in the baggage, he is now used by God to deliver Israel. He is the humble, spirit-empowered king who saves. And now I'm not going to stop long here, but just notice. I, we, we've talked about this book, and I'm... I am so glad, and even in our core training, we're talking about the book of Leviticus this morning, and I just want to argue and say that there is a divine author for all of Scripture, so that when you see these things and it rings in your ears that this may be not just about this, but actually pointing to something else, I want to say, yes, that's right, that this is pointing to something else. We, we often, uh, we can read stories like this, and it's a, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing to read the Bible and realize God is telling us a great story of redemption, and He has given you and me, brothers and sisters, a place in it today. But we, we can read a story like this, and we can say, I'm Saul. I want to be the Spirit-empowered leader, and that's, that's not bad. I want to tell you, you should, as a Christian, you have God's Spirit. You, you should see the difference that the Spirit makes in the life of a Christian, of a believer. We need that desperately. But before we look at this story and we say, I am Saul, if we were honest, we're much more like the people of Jabesh Gilead. We are hostages to an enemy that we cannot defeat on our own. And thank God that our Spirit-empowered King Jesus is the great deliverer of our souls. What mercy we have. I know even for, for maybe some of you in this room, some of my friends, it was, it was worse than that. It's not that they were just the men of Jabesh Gilead who were hostage to an enemy. They were the people who probably heard the gospel growing up, who knew, who had asked a thousand times the question that the enemies of Saul asked, how can this man Jesus save me? He's got nothing to do with me. Oh, friends, just as Saul shows mercy, this King, King Jesus, is merciful. And so, friend, if, if that is you, if you're here today and you have wondered a thousand times, how could, what does Jesus have to do with me? We want to tell you, and I'll tell you later in the sermon and more, he has everything to do with you. And he can save you. And even if you have been his enemy or doubted him a thousand times, he shows mercy he is the spirit-empowered king that we need. And salvation is only through him. Now this, this chapter, the end of this chapter, closes with a final crowning of Saul as king. And the people rejoice in the victory. They celebrate the peace they have with God together. And as we turn to chapter 12, you're going to feel, I hope, what feels like a really sharp left-hand turn. After a victory like this, like if, if this were the high school, I don't know what they played. We'll call it football. Football team of Jabesh Gilead. What happens after this is a pep rally. If you like what King Saul did to those Ammonites, just get ready. We're going to show those Philistines. Come out on Friday night next week and you'll see it. But that's not what happens. Instead of a pep rally, rah-rah, kind of here's how great Saul is, what you get is a trial. You run headlong into a courtroom. So while chapter 11 teaches that salvation comes through God's spirit-empowered king, 
Chapter 12 begins by teaching us that salvation comes despite our rebellion and faithlessness. So in verses 1 through 5, Samuel is the first one up. This is a trial, and Samuel puts himself on the dock. He steps into the, the place where the defense stands, and he basically opens his life up to Israel and says, if I've done anything wrong, if I've abused my power, if I've taken anything from you, if I've been selfish, tell it to me now. And in verse 4, all of Israel declares that, that Samuel has been faithful. He has been a good priest. So Samuel steps down off the dock, but the trial is not yet over. The trial was not ultimately going to be Samuel in the defense. Samuel now steps from the defenders from the dock and steps into the place of the prosecutor. And in verses 6 through 19, he begins the case of Yahweh v. Israel. And he begins with this look at the faithfulness of God. He points out the way in which God has graciously delivered Israel throughout her history. So look with me at verses 6 through 11. Look at, look at uh, 1 Samuel 12, 6 through 11. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. And pay attention here. Listen in these next few verses for the pattern that Samuel puts forward for how the Lord had dealt with Israel. Okay, verse 8. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot their God, the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. Pause there. What's what's the pattern that Samuel is laying down here? There's three kind of pieces. There's there's the their fathers are oppressed. They're oppressed in Egypt. They're oppressed in the land. uh, Both for different circumstances, Egypt through slavery and the land through their own sin. But in both instances, they cry out to the Lord, which is the second part of this pattern, and then the Lord responds. The Lord sends a deliverer to the people of Israel. Can you see that pattern? People oppressed, cry out to the Lord, the Lord delivers. Now look at verse 12. Just just listen for the break in that pattern. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, You said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king whom you have chosen for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. 
You see there the first part of that pattern, right? Nahash comes out, there's oppression to the people, but, but then what, what happens? There, there is no cry to the Lord. The people, instead of looking back at the pattern of what God has done for them throughout their history, instead of crying out to the Lord for the deliverance, they march up to Samuel and they demand, give us a king. That's what we need. Friend, where, where you turn, who you turn to for deliverance, it matters. It matters a great deal who you cry out to for deliverance. Where we turn in the midst of need, of distress, it, it acts like a spiritual x-ray. Right? It's, it's showing in our own hearts what is going on. And in these cases, it shows that they had rejected the Lord as their king. That's what Kyle pointed out to us in 1 Samuel 8. These, are, these two chapters are tied together as bookends of what happens when they cry out to Samuel for a king. They have rejected the Lord as their king. And so we can ask, even in our own distress, you, friend, you, Christian, where do you turn in your distress? Like when you feel that you're being pressed, that you need deliverance, you need someone, where do you go? And what does that tell you about your heart? Brothers and sisters, I, I ask questions like that, and, and I hope sometimes you may hear it like Ryan thinks, we're all terrible people. No, I'm, I'm really grateful. I, I want you to ask that question of yourself, and I am so grateful to God. I'm grateful to know many of you who faithfully and frequently turn to the Lord in the midst of your need. This, this week I heard, uh, I heard a mutual friend of mine who who would just say that, that uh, life is not where they thought it would be. They, they thought life would look like this, and it looks nothing like what they hoped it would look like. And they were meeting with, uh, they were going to talk to Emily and Addison Duke, who are members of this church, and after talking about her sorrow, she told me that Addison Duke stopped immediately and said, you know what we should do? We should pray. <laughs> we should stop and pray right now. I got a text this week from a member within minutes of hearing some devastating news, and it wasn't, hey, I need, I need some solutions to what's going on in my life. It was a request for prayer. Friends, this thing has just happened, and I need you to pray for me. His first impulse was to turn to the Lord in prayer and then to ask others to intercede on his behalf. Friends, be careful. Be careful that we learn this lesson. Israel thought like they, they had seen crisis before in their own history, but for some reason it's just like the crisis right in front of you. You can think this one is, it's not gonna, it won't cut it. Like this, what's worked in the past, what God has done in the past, this crisis is different. And I gotta find something new. And that's what they do. They turn to say, can, what, we need maybe the newest fad. We need the king like all the nations around us. And, and you, friend, may say, I need that best self-help book. I've heard about this new spiritual technique that I think may solve this problem. Friends, we, we don't need that. We need the faithful God. The promise-keeping Lord is where we turn in our distress. And where Israel failed, we should remind ourselves frequently Turn to the Lord. 
So I'll just even put counsel in your own mouths. Do as Addison's not here, so I can say whatever I want to about him. Do as Addison did. If somebody comes to you and says, this is what's going on, let me counsel you. Maybe stop and pray first. One, you're talking to the, the king of the universe who actually can do more than you can do. And never think like, I'm sorry, the only thing I can do is pray. <laughs> no, no, no. That's the best thing you can do. You're instructing your friend, you're instructing our own hearts in doing that. And I know that is like the easiest application, the most low-hanging fruit for a pastor ever. You should go pray to the Lord when something comes up. Friends, it's just true. It's blocking and tackling. It's Christianity 101. It's the thing that you say, you will never outgrow your need. Kids, you, we tell you to turn to the Lord. Adults, it's not like you grow into something else that you need to do. We cry out to the Lord in our need. Now, Israel had apparently not learned this lesson. So the Lord sent a sign to them to convince them of their guilt and convict them of it. So Samuel, in verses 16 through 18, he says, just, just so you know, I'm not like an angry old prophet. I'm going to ask the Lord to send thunder and rain in the middle of dry season. As, as a sign that you, what I'm saying is right, that you have turned from a king and that that is a wickedness. And the Lord answers that. It's, it's like God brings down the gavel and says, Samuel is right. You are guilty. And Israel, when they see that, they enter a plea. In verse 19, all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all of our sins this evil. To ask for ourselves a king. They recognize their guilt. And what are, what are they to do? They stand guilty before a holy God. They know that he has both the, the right. He's the king. And now they see he has the power to crush them. And this is why. Like you get here and you feel why chapter 11 and chapter 12 feel so incongruent. Like why they feel like they're butting heads and don't fit together. If Israel is so guilty, if asking for a king was such an act of rebellion, why does God give them victory over their enemies in chapter 11? Don't the Israelites deserve the face of God's wrath in that battle? And in the next one? And in the next one? Yes. Yes, that's what Israel deserves uh, kids you've been memorizing some bible verses over the past few weeks here in core training so if someone wants to raise their hand and if you know romans six i'd love if you could say it out loud i know that's maybe nerve-wracking shepherd you think you got it you want to stand up and say it That's right. Very good. For the wages of sin is death. What, what's a wage? Right? A, a wage, maybe that's a word, kids, you may not know. A wage, though, is something that you get for what you do. You work and you earn this wage. And this is saying that the Bible is clear. Our sin, which all of us do, the thing we get The thing that we earn with our sin is death. Which is why the end of chapter 12 is so richly beautiful. 
why the mercy of victory in chapter 11 highlights not Samuel's prowess, but God's kindness. Look with me at verses 20 and 21. Listen, I want you to listen to these verses with this question in mind. Israel has said, we are guilty. What is their solution before a holy God? Look at verse 20. Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. What is the solution to our guilt? Here, here there's a few things that are, are, that are pointed out that are not the solution. First, see in verse 20, okay, the solution to your guilt and mine is not to minimize that guilt. Right? The people confess their sin before God. They go to Samuel and say, hey, pray because we have done wrong. And Samuel's response, sometimes like this, this is this response that I feel like people say I've done wrong. And I'm like, not that big a deal. Don't worry about it. And Samuel says, you have done all this evil. Like that, that's right. They, they cannot minimize their guilt. This is what we talked about this morning in uh, core training, looking at Leviticus. Sin is an infinitely big deal. We serve an infinitely holy God. And if we come before him and we say just like, what I need to do is minimize my guilt or defend myself, it won't lead to the end of yourself Will you find that you have great need. So you you will. Others among you, 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 friends you talk to, they will feel guilt. And the solution is not to say your guilt isn't that bad. Okay? Second, in your guilt, here's the other thing that, that we can be tempted to do. Don't turn to empty things. And there are too many empty things that we could list for the next half hour or hour that people turn to to try to rid ourselves of guilt. Places that we say, I feel this and I need to get rid of it. So what do I do? We can think, this is maybe the most common one among people for probably, especially in Birmingham, but maybe everywhere. If we do enough good, we can outweigh the bad. And so we turn to the empty thing of moralism, which by itself is empty. We can think that if we maybe distract ourselves from guilt, I just want to get rid of like the angst that I feel from guilt, then we can distract ourselves with pleasure. So we turn to the empty thing of hedonism. There's so many places that we can turn, but if you put your weight and your hope on any of those things, as soon as you lean on it, you will find that it gives way underneath you, that it is empty. What Samuel says is true. Those things cannot profit or deliver. They are empty. And even if you get the temporary relief, even if you may find yourself saying, I've not thought about my guilt for a day or a week, maybe even a year, there's coming a day when that guilt is still coming before you. Justice does come. Dealing with the symptom of your guilt does not deal with the root How then do we deal with our guilt? Where is salvation to be found? Look down at verse 22 of this passage. 
It says, don't turn aside after empty things. They're empty in verse 21. Verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. That's gospel news. Salvation comes not because of our good works, not because we have done it all right, but because of God's faithfulness for his name's sake. The solution to our guilt is not in self or empty things. It's not in minimizing our guilt. The solution is found in a faithful, promise-keeping God. The free, marvelous, and undeserved gift of God is eternal life with Christ Jesus our Lord, as Shepherd told us earlier. And that, friends, is not just like a New Testament verse that we find out in Romans 6.23. This is the picture that we have all throughout the Bible. God's rich mercy has been and always will be utterly undeserved. We are saved not by works done in righteousness, but by grace alone. And that is what we see here. Putting these two chapters side by side, salvation that is undeserved and a God who graciously gives it, is teaching that in an Old Testament narrative. Israel deserves death for her treason. But God is overwhelmingly kind and mercy and saves for his name's sake. And brothers and sisters, I, I know that many of you I know that in the past few months, many of you have felt the weight of your own sin. You, you may have heard that even this morning in a prayer of confession where you say, I am guilty. And your response, our response, what we should do is we should see with clarity the depth of sin. And that sin does stain. But if that's you, brother or sister in Christ, marvel. Stop and marvel at the grace of God in Christ. That he forgives. That salvation comes even though we are faithless. He remains faithful. And for you, you can find mercy in him because of how good God is. And friend, if you are here, if you've never trusted Christ for salvation, but, but you feel yourself to be a sinner. Again, you may have heard this news a thousand times. And yet somehow today or this week you come to the recognition that you have great need. You realize the odiousness of your sin, the weight of your sin. And you may say, I have been doubtful for so long and I have no idea if this God will take me in. But know that he does. That in his mercy, those who turn to him in faith, in Christ, receive life. That is what the gospel is all about. That we, who have no right standing before God, God sends his son, Jesus, to die in our place. Suffer for us, for our sin. And all we do is turn to him in faith. And we can be saved by his faithfulness for us. If you have questions about that this morning, that's something I'm happy to talk with you after the service. If you're a guest with us, you came here with a friend, uh, if, if you just ask any people you saw up here on stage, we would love nothing more than to talk with you about how you can find salvation in Christ today. Now, there, there are a few verses here at the end of the chapter that force a choice upon Israel. 
And they, they actually echo these closing verses. They echo a charge that Samuel had made earlier in the chapter as well. Flip, look up just at chapter 12, verses 14 through 15. We skipped over these earlier, but I, I want you to, to hear these. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. And we get that same kind of charge repeated in verses 24 and 25. Only fear the Lord, verse 24, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Israel... In the history of their nation, they wanted a king to fight their battles, and the Lord had given that to them. And here we see with clarity that they have hitched their future to their king. Their destiny, what's happening in the nation, the future of the nation, the future of the king, they are tied together. Now, do you hear that? And especially like in verse 14, if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord, it will be well. But if you and the king rebel, if you act wickedly, you will both be swept away. Well, the rest of the the Old Testament is in many ways the sad story of how Israel and her kings, they both act faithless. They both turn away and act wickedly, and they suffer the consequences of their continued sin. Now, God has said he is merciful. He he does not utterly wipe them out. But by the end of the book of Kings and by the end of the Old Testament, the book of Chronicles, Israel is a nation that is diminished and defeated and displaced. That They're swept away because of their faithlessness and the faithlessness of the kings that they have said they wanted to lead them and to stand in place as their leaders. And brothers and sisters, we, we should. We should rightly hear Warnings as a call not to neglect so great a salvation. We who have been delivered by Christ, you here in this room, we ought to walk in fear and reverence and serve the Lord. But we can hear this warning and we can actually read these also with a sense of hope. Israel in First Samuel 12, they've not, they don't have the end of their story that still kind of lays before them. But we, we've, actually seen the end of our story there's even hope that we find here in these chapters we have hope that the king we've hitched our future to actually turns out really well look look at verse 23 and you'll see just one of these reasons of hope this is samuel talking to the people he's a spurned prophet but in verse 23 he says moreover as for me far be it from me that i should sin against the lord by ceasing to pray for you And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Samuel isn't rooting for the downfall of those who rejected him and who rejected the king, Yahweh. He says, I'm going to continue my work of mediating. Right? I'm I'm going to continue to be praying for you and to teach you the good thing. And thank God we have a better Samuel today doing the same thing. That we have one who is now praying for us at the Father's right hand. One who has continued and will continue to instruct us in the good and right way. So we have hope because of a faithful prophet 
and priest, Jesus. And our hope goes even further than that. Israel is right. Like what has happened to Israel in this place is they have said our destiny and the king, we want those tied together. We want a king to lead us in battle. And that's, that's true for you, whether you're a Christian or not. Your, your future is hitched to who you crown as king. And so if, if you are and say, I am the king of my life, I'm the one I rely on, or I look elsewhere for that, your destiny is there. That thing that you follow. And the Bible is really clear about what happens to that king, to you and me, apart from Christ. We are faithless. They will not profit or deliver. But for those who are in Christ, who've said, I bow the knee to him, we have the same promise as well. That we have hitched our hope. We have put everything in with this king. And unlike Israel, who has to wonder throughout their history, is this king going to be the one who's faithful and who leads us into victory? Or is this the faithless one who's going to lead us in destruction? There is no shadow of turning with the king that we follow. There is no blemish or stain, no selfishness, no abuse of power like the kings of old or the kings of even today. We may have been faithless, but our great king Jesus has been and ever will be faithful which is why, for those of you who are in Christ, we will rejoice in just a few moments, even by singing this of the hope that we have in faithful Jesus, King Jesus. We have strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. We have salvation in our spirit-empowered King who gives us his life by his faithfulness even when we are faithless. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. We admit that we are have been faithless. Lord, there is nothing in us that is attractive so that we should be the ones who are saved, but you, by your mercy and through your Spirit, have sent Christ to save a people for yourself. So would you help us now, those who belong to you, to walk and fear and reverence and to serve you all of our days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.